the telecommunications industry is well known for being fiercely competitive, but at times like this, we're fiercely collaborative. So it was a really good collaborative environment between Two Degrees, Spark, Vodafone, Chorus, and many, many of the suppliers that we had on the grounds, you know, collaborating together, working together, using each other's resources, helping each other get connectivity back for the, uh, for the good of New Zealanders. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, today I have the privilege of catching up with Martin Sharrick, Chief Technology Officer at Two Degrees. Welcome Martin, how are you? Kia Paul, thanks for inviting me. Great to, great to have you here. It's been it's been a rather disruptive time this uh, last few weeks and uh, so we, we were hoping to catch up a couple of weeks ago but yeah, there's a bit of a cyclone and, you know, cell sites that got knocked out and uh, there were all sorts of dramas. Of course, you know, some of the country is, is very much, uh, you know, still impacted by that. You were showing me a photo just b- before we started of a, you know, a road that uh, got, uh, has been, you know, wiped out between, I think, uh, Napier and, and uh, Taupo, where the road's gone, but that's also taken fibre with it. So there there's really has been... Some pretty significant disruption to New Zealand's telecommunications on a scale that we've never really seen before. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, look, look, it's been um, an unprecedented time. What I do want to do is just before I'm answering the question, just just to call out the people on the ground. You know, we've had 16 or 17 days of preparation and then storm response and then restoration of fiber networks and mobile networks. And it's not just the telco people on the ground people providing accommodation, people providing cars, people providing logistics. It's been a huge, huge national undertaking by so many people in New Zealand. So, uh, you know, I've been up here in the control center at two degrees in the operations center, but so many people have been down there on the ground making mm-hmm. a huge difference for New Zealand, putting things putting things back together. It's been massive. Yeah, look, I, you know, I think all of New Zealand appreciates the efforts that have been going in um, across the board. Before we sort of jump in, to everything, a big thank you to our show partners for keeping New Zealand Tech Podcast operating. Uh, so thank you to uh, Gorilla Technology, HP, Spark, Two Degrees, and Vodafone. Uh, lovely to have Two Degrees as uh, part of the the support for New Zealand Tech Podcast. So yeah, I think I mean there, there, there's a lot to talk about in terms of you know what's been happening yep, within the, the world of yep. um, Two Degrees. There's also um, you know, so much. I think we can we can delve into to to understand. You know what what has happened in a disaster scenario. Uh, what the learnings are for the for the future. Yep. Um, there, uh, you know, I guess, have been big changes internationally in terms of the role of Huawei. And of course, you know, Two Degrees Network has started out with Huawei technology and now m- moving ahead in another direction. So um, there's some int- probably some interesting aspects in terms of how that looks. Rural broadband, ultra-fast broadband, lots of things. So over. much. Yeah. So yeah, let let's start sort of delving into you know just you know how big was that impact of Cyclone Gabriel? I think last week we referred to a figure that had been passed on to me, possibly partway through the the restoration uh, of the mobile cell sites, and I think you know we talked sort of six to seven percent of cell sites uh, nationwide. Um, you know, being knocked out. Um, but when we were chatting earlier, you see that number could it could be a lot higher, maybe as high as ten percent. Yeah, at the peak. I mean, yeah. j- just rewinding. Obviously, this this was the third 
event we'd had within just a few weeks. You know, yeah. we had the storms before Christmas. We had the storms in January. And then this unprecedented cyclone Gabrielle coming through just a few weeks ago. And it, it really was an unprecedented event on the scale we haven't seen, obviously, for many years, certainly from a telecommunications perspective. The one good thing about a weather event is you know it's coming. Unlike tsunami potentially or earthquakes, you know a weather event is coming. And it did therefore give us several days to actually prepare the team, prepare on the ground for what we knew was about to happen for New Zealand. I mean, you've heard many stories about generators, about satellite links, et cetera. And as two degrees, you know, two or three days in advance, we were moving generators to the places where we thought they'd be most needed. With generators, you need fuel. With fuel, you need personnel and people to look after them as well. Um, we actually accelerated some of the preparation in the lab. You know, we were looking at how could we potentially get cell sites back online if we have problems with fiber, for example, from a backhaul perspective. And the main tactics we used were microwave radio and then ultimately satellite links as well via, um, via Starlink. So all this was happening before the winds even started and it felt quite surreal on the Thursday and Friday to be doing this kind of preparation in the calm weather before the, uh, before the storm pushed on through on the, um, on the Sunday, Monday and, uh, and Tuesday. Uh, the other unique thing, you know, generally this kind of catastrophe is localized, you know, localized to a particular town or a particular city. We all obviously remember um, vividly Kaikoura and Christchurch. Yeah. Um, this event was not localized. You know, it started in Northland, it pushed through Auckland, it pushed down through the Waikato, and then on, as we know, very much through the Hawke's Bay and into, uh, into Gisborne as well. So we were actually logistically moving people, moving equipment, moving generators, down the country as the um, as the event actually matured over four or five days. In terms of your your upfront, you know, view on on how big the disruption, you know, might be. Did you know? Did you have much of a, a, a feeling? Did you have an inkling it could have been at this sort of scale from from the modelling? Was it you know because these things move yeah. around and and change? You don't really know until until it happens, right? Yeah, I mean, we run scenarios, and, mm. and generally, if you're an operational executive and you have a good operational team, you tend to run the far right scenario more than you run the the far left. So we were thinking, what happens if we take down multiple fibers? You know, all fiber networks generally on the main paths around New Zealand are on diverse paths, mm. and the kind of scenarios we were running is what happens if we lose both or all three diverse paths to many of these sites. What happens if we can't get the crews to the cell sites quickly with respect to um, to generators? All cell sites have batteries, but they only last so long. So we mm. were running the mm. far right scenario of what if we can't get to these cell sites for six hours, 12 hours, or even 24 or 48 hours. So um, I think the answer to the question is we were thinking far right well in advance. Yeah, well, it certainly, um, yeah, it was it was. I think probably, um, you know, from that, the telecommunications impact, uh, you know, perspective must have been at the at the very, you know, yeah. far end of the scale in terms of uh, how how bad things, you know, could have been. Are you left with any? And I don't know if enough time's gone past yet, but any thoughts on how things would change, you know, in the future? To considering that we're expecting there's going to be more incidents rather than, you know, less from a weather perspective, yeah. you know, in the, in the future. And, of course, 
you've now had to deal with a pretty major, you know, hit at a at a really large scale. Yeah. Do you think that will lead to some some differences and some changes? And of course, you know, part of it that you were able to leverage, you mentioned, um, you know, Starlink, that wouldn't have been a, a practical option when most of these cell sites were uh, were purchased, right? So um, so things, you know, the t- the technology uh, that facilitates things is has been has been changing over time. Yeah, I think you could split it into things that work well and things that we could potentially improve together, both as a company and as an industry and mm, also mm. generally across um, across New Zealand. I mean, things that work well. The telecommunications industry is well known for being fiercely competitive, but at times like this, we're fiercely collaborative. So it was a really good collaborative environment between Two Degrees, Spark, Vodafone, Chorus, and many, many of the suppliers that we had on the ground. So don't change anything there. You know, collaborating together, working together, using each other's resources, helping each other get connecti- connectivity back for the uh, for the good of New Zealanders. Like, for example, um, we got mobile connectivity back relatively quickly into Gisborne by using some uh, microwave connectivity, but then we got it back on fibre. And by doing that, we allowed the 111 service, the 111 service to be used by anyone in the area. Um, We all have fibre networks and generally pretty quickly we can share them if someone gets their link up faster than somebody else. Mm. So, you know, lots of collaboration going on across the industry. Um, Other things that that worked pretty well, you know, cell sites... um, held up really well from a physical infrastructure perspective. If you consider that the power infrastructure had many, many problems with respect to resilience, the actual cell towers themselves did not break. They didn't fall over, they didn't blow over, uh, generally they weren't flooded, so the infrastructure held up pretty, pretty well. So, you know, what generally um, we had problems with was access to the cell sites, you know, being able to get there with a ute, um, with a generator, with technicians, etc., and then the fact that power was out for a very, very long time was one we have to work on in the um, in the future. Mm. Um, it has actually probably increased a little bit of the innovative work that we were doing and all the telcos are doing in the background. You mentioned Starlink. Mm. Um, what we have been working on in the lab is actually being able to use a generator and a business grade Starlink um, set. You know, we don't use the consumer grade. Why not? I mean, the the, the business grade actually can, um, contains more CII, more committed um, business grade um, bandwidth right, that we so can, can use. You can get more more data across more it, data. More um, it, it also includes a, a more sensitive, um, higher quality antenna, so we can actually get better better quality for the backhaul rather than just one particular uh, one particular customer. Mm-hmm. And it also includes, you know, a native Ethernet adapter as well, so we can plug it natively into a into a cell site. So we, we started working with these business grade Satlink systems from Starlink several months ago, and actually. Nobody wants a catastrophe, but the ability to get that system on the ground, get it configured and prove it has been actually quite instrumental in probably helping these kind of disasters in the future. In fact, we still have one of those systems on the ground in Wairoa, and we've left it there deliberately, taking advantage of the fact that, you know, number one, the fiber infrastructure is still a little bit tenuous in the area, so we wanted to make sure we kept it on the ground, and secondly, Mm. to soak it to understand it, to study it, to look at the stats, you know, to take one or two weeks to really see mm. what that means from a customer experience perspective for a, for a cell site on the ground. So, you know, to answer your question, 
we, we would continue to improve that kind of last line of defense telecommunications solution, you know, test it in the field, test it in the lab, and, and really make sure that next time, you know, we, we've got about 10 of these um, Starlink systems and we've got mm-hmm. over 50 generators that we keep around the country. So we could actually deploy systems a little bit faster in the future. Now we've actually gone through the innovation curve. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's helpful. So it's not, I guess, the, the there's so many, uh, so many cell sites and there's always, I guess, that sort of, you know, balance in terms of in, investment um, and it could be a long time before any you know any one site goes down that you wouldn't be at the point at this stage of of wanting to put a, a sat link on every sort of yeah. cell site that would yeah that wouldn't be a practical sort of thing at this point yeah it's interesting I mean cyclone Gabrielle was you know a once in a hundred year event yeah. and you know Previously, we, we think we found the sweet spot with respect to battery life, for example, mm, on mm, cell sites mm, between mm. four and eight eight hours. Generally, you can get to a cell site within two or three hours. Yeah, You can place a generator there if you need to. Even more than that, generally, you can fix the fault or the electricity company can fix the fault mm, inside four mm. hours. So ecologically as well, you don't really want to have piles and piles of batteries at 5,000 cell sites all around New Zealand, actually, all the time. So you've got to find the sweet spot with respect to battery power. Um, the satellite question is interesting. I mean, generally the reason the cell site goes down is power rather than backhaul. Most mm. cell sites are fiber fed, certainly two degrees cell sites are. You know, we built ours from 2010 to, to now, and that's been during the generation of UFB and during the generation of fiber. So we've really taken advantage of fiber at two degrees cell sites, highly reliable, unlikely that it goes down and causes an outage. So generally it's power. So as long as the batteries are working, we find the sweet spot of the time for the batteries. Under normal circumstances, it should be good. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, we need to think hard about when we have these extraordinary climate-driven events like Cyclone Gabrielle, what extra can we do quickly to get connectivity back? And and that's the, you know, the satellite link Starlink scenario we just talked about. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um now let's talk about um, you know changes in the network. Um, you're going through a, a transition of sort of you know yeah. modernising you know the technology and yeah. uh, you know across all your all your cell sites. Um, how is that sort of different to maybe what you know some of the other networks have been have been doing? This is sort of part of your move to to five G. Um, yeah. yeah, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, generationally, Two Degrees started building the network in 2009, accelerated through 2010 to 2013 and, mm, and onwards. Mm, so, mm. you know, the network is now over 10 years old in, in many places. And two years ago, we started to renovate the network. Um, we made a decision that we would actually renovate from the ground up. So the big difference is that every cell site we upgrade we actually take away all the equipment that was already there and we turn on new equipment from a new supplier. We're using Ericsson, Ericsson who are supplying uh, Telstra in Australia, so very good credentials and the performance has been borne out here in New Zealand through network testing. Um, and you know, we've actually what we've actually done is every cell site we've been to, we've turned on every carrier of spectrum that two degrees has, 700 megahertz, 900, 1800, 2100 and of course 3500 megahertz where we've got 5G new 
C-band um, allocation of 80 megahertz of, of spectrum. So we've really been going full out to make sure that if we touch a cell site, if we close the road, if we have to do any physical work on the ground, we've actually done a complete upgrade and turned it into something much better than it was than it was before. Uh, we started in the main cities. I mean, if you go back to two degrees history, the first places we built the network was Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, and Queenstown. Mm. And we've actually started in the main cities for the renovation of the network. And now, if you drive through downtown Auckland, if you drive to downtown Wellington, Christchurch, you will actually see you get a good contiguous 5G experience on the uh, on the two degrees network. Um, what we've also done is because we've only got one vendor or one supplier for all five layers of the network, it allows us to do something called dynamic spectrum sharing. It means that as 5G becomes more popular, more proliferated, um, you know, devices are what's driving 5G uptake, both mobile devices and wireless broadband devices. We can dynamically allocate spectrum 5G and 4G right across the cell. Um, right now, the capacity layer and the biggest layer of 5G spectrum is the 3500 megahertz. And we've been using some amazing technologies like uh, like MIMO technologies, beamforming technologies to get some amazing data rates actually down through the cell sites. You know, you can actually walk through downtown Auckland now and get real life user speeds between 500, 600, up to the best one I've seen is about 870 megabits per second through wow. a 5G aggregated with 4G mobile connection, which is uh, unprecedented from, uh, from a few years ago. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, we, we've been doing customer walks down in Wellington, you know, walking people through how we've built the network, um, where the network is. You know, sometimes it's quite hard to see the cell sites. We do tend to hide them away a little bit, but we've built a multi-layered network in, in the city centers to make sure no matter where you are, down at street level, in your car, in an office building, I think we got a performance of about 370 sat inside your office building here in uh, in Auckland. So, you know, we're tremendously proud of what we've done. And the job forward from here is, you know, we, we, we're approaching um, quite a few hundred cell sites that we've actually swapped already. And the rest of the job for the next couple of years is to do the rest. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting. And so at, at the end of this, does this, this uh, puts you in a position where You've got a, a full Ericsson network, and you know Huawei is is that's that's gone. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, just to break the networks down, mm -hmm. um, all three operators have just over four hundred cell sites that we share between us. Mm -hmm. So, from an outside in perspective, thinking rural, we're exactly the same. You know, we, we've all put money in together with the government and built the rural connectivity group network, which is over four hundred sites covers tourist hotspots, highways, rural New Zealand, and really does start to fill in those gaps that were, that were basically not spots in the future and helps with public safety and helps with coverage in rural. So that's exactly the same. The rest of the cell sites, obviously, um, from a two degrees perspective, we have a couple of hundred that we share or co-locate, two degrees spectrum, two degrees network, two degrees experience, but we share the towers and we share with, um, with Vodafone. Yeah. Um, the rest of the cell sites, which is over two thirds of them, are actually owned, operated, built, upgraded, maintained, operated by by two degrees. And the objective is over time that we'd swap all of those cell sites for brand new cell sites. What does the um, the selling off of the cell towers? How does that impact uh, anything from your your perspective? Yeah, obviously you've seen in New Zealand that all three mobile operators have now actually 
sold or offered to sell the um, the physical infrastructure. Um, from a two degrees perspective, we have to wait for overseas investment office and ComCom clearance, but the precedent has been set, so we hope that goes through um, as expected. Um, what have we sold, first of all? You know, we've sold the physical concrete. We've sold the steel that the cell sites sit on. But, for example, the power at the site, uh, the ancillaries on the site, cabling, antennas, etc., um, all the active equipment on the site, microwave radio, um, radio access network from a cellular perspective, um, all still belongs to two degrees. So we have full influence over mm. the technology we use, yep. the capacity we have on the cell sites. You know, and what we've done is we've sold the physical towers and the physical concrete. And we're hoping that, you know, from a New Zealand perspective, obviously with all three companies now having divested that part of the uh, the business, we're going to get lots of synergies where we can bring that physical asset together and we compete at the network electronics level and the network experience level. Yeah, oh, that's, re- that's really interesting. Um, now, what, el- what else is, is going on, um, you know, on the on the network, uh, you know, front for you. Are there any other things that folks would be would be interested in? Yeah, oh, oh, so much. I mean, um, obviously, people think of two degrees and they think prepaid mobile, maybe you know, from the past. But we really are a full service telecommunications provider now. We've recently, as many people know, gone through a merger with Vocus Communications as well. So that brings into two degrees over four thousand two hundred kilometers of actual physical fiber up and down the country. So we're, we're a fiber provider. You know, it's an interesting marketplace because now you've got Chorus, you've got Vodafone, you've got Spark, and you have two degrees all actually having fiber in the ground, providing connectivity, not only up and down the country, but in the big cities as well, providing uh, business connections. So uh, providing data center connections as well. We all connect up to the hyperscalers. We all connect up to the international cables, etc. So it's become quite an interesting marketplace. Now we're on a level playing field with the, uh, with the competition. Um, obviously, we're going through a big integration exercise as well. Uh, we've got the assets from Vocus and the assets from Two Degrees. So we're going as fast as we can, bringing those together, bringing us advantages. It means we have more network, we have more sites, we have more data centers, but also we have efficiencies as well. You know, where we have duplication, we're working quickly to try and um, migrate and, and bring together the network, the network asset as well. Yeah, that's um, there's, there's certainly a lot going on there. You you mentioned the hyperscalers, and you know we've got uh, you know Microsoft and AWS, and you know I guess um, you know every, everyone you know will will be um, you know benefiting in New Zealand, you know from uh, well largely I guess is that there's a few folks probably not not so keen if they've got uh, somewhat uh, competing, you know, local hosting and so on. But um, with that move of the of the big players mm. into the New Zealand market, what does that look like? How much sort of, you know, connectivity do you need to put in to, to connect up with them? And, yeah. uh, you know, what are the other, other pieces that people might might not know that are, that are interesting? Yeah, I mean, even just, just stepping back from a micro view, um, the amount of data the amount of content and the amount of compute that's actually happening on the ground on New Zealand soil has been increasing for many years, even before the hyperscalers have made mm, the decision mm. to come to New Zealand. Uh, you know, the percentage amount of traffic that we actually go offshore now to collect for our customers is becoming smaller and smaller. You're into the 20% rather than, you know, 10 years ago, it would be much, 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 much higher than that. Um, you know, from a two degrees perspective, we're not here to try and compete with the hyperscalers, but we do have some 
unique credentials that we can bring to the marketplace. You know, we mm. do have data centers on the ground and we host many, many customers who want to be near to the international cables, yeah. near to the hyperscalers, we do connect to them, and also near to the internet peering exchanges. So, you know, our, our sweet spot is securely, reliably, resiliently hosting business customers and giving them the connectivity they need um, in, in the big cities around, around New Zealand. And can you can you talk to you know what sort of connectivity that you you put in with uh, to, you know to the hyperscalers? Uh, generally, we're providing fiber connectivity. Yeah, I mean we're connecting our data center to their data center. I mean the whole of New Zealand is connected together by by fiber these days, and you know our objective is to make sure we've got um, available reliable fiber connectivity into the hyperscalers. It means our business customers can very very easily. Well, attach their applications and their networks to when they require to to the hyperscalers. Yeah, and I mean, how? But how? How fat are those pipes? As we might, you know, we might say. I mean, what's the? I guess you've got that flexibility to sort of scale them over time. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's fascinating that uh, you know, a fiber pair these days can carry you know eight or nine terabits terabits per second. So mm. it actually, we're not actually constrained as mm. much by mm. the actual fiber. Fiber itself, and when you're just going a short distance, um, two streets away, or you know, a few uh, kilometers across Auckland, the uh, mm. the fiber really isn't the constraint because you really can turn on a heap load of bandwidth when you're um, when you're actually connecting across such short distances. Yeah, and I mean, we look at New Zealand's international connectivity. I know when you know when we started doing the New Zealand Tech podcast, it, you know, it was um, it was a little bit worrying actually. <laughs> you know, there wasn't there wasn't too much um, you know international uh, you know, connectivity. I think you know we had the the you know Southern Southern Cross, uh, and and that was you know that was pretty much it. Obviously, things have have, have uh, you know grown a lot uh, since then, and and there's a you know fair degree of resiliency. But you know things happen uh, of of varying sorts. How comfortable do you sort of feel with the level of connectivity that we have as a country? And you know, do you do you think there's still a bit of a way to you know, to go to um, to give us, um, you know, I guess I don't know if you can ever get to complete peace of mind that we yeah. couldn't couldn't get cut off from the rest of the world. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, the fiber connectivity has significantly improved from where it was one or two decades ago mm. for sure. You know, we've got the Hawaii cable, you've got the TGA cable, you've got the two Southern Cross cables. You know, it makes a big difference. Obviously, we mm. can plan mm. our network connectivity and resilience based on using all of the different cables. Mm. Um, then, of course, you've got the fiber connectivity, not only internationally, but across, across the Cook Strait. Mm. You know, so we have to make sure that we've got good diversity going from Wellington, um, going from the Kapiti Coast, actually down into down into South Island as well. So I, I think, look, I mean, um, you can never have enough international cables to different diverse points, especially when we have the kind of um, weather events and um, um, catastrophes that we have had in New Zealand, um, you know, it's good that we're looking at a, a consortiums looking at bringing a cable down to the bottom of South Island, which mm. will help. Which yeah, will help a lot. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we'd certainly be open to um, consortium or joint ventures that would actually improve the fibre connectivity between North Island and South Island. Mm. So, how what is there at the moment in terms of that connectivity? Between South and North Island. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we've got um, transpire cables. We've got cables that go across from two cables that go across from Wellington to, um, to to Blenheim. And we've also got a cable that goes across from 
Nelson into the Kapiti Coast, and there's a an older cable that goes down um, the East Coast as well, that goes into Kaikoura and into Christchurch. So there is diversity of cable, but maybe some aging uh, cables in there as well. So obviously, um, it would be interesting to actually um, collaborate together as mm. an industry mm. and think about mm. how we can improve both capacity and diversity across the Cook's Ring. Yeah. Um, now, looking at the role of um, ultra-fast broadband in New Zealand, you know mm. the um, the fibre rollout. You you know you mentioned how you know when when two degrees started building a network, it was at the time where you know uh, the UFB rollout was was kicking off, and so you've you know you've been a beneficiary of that and able yep. to sort of you know tap into um, you know to the UFB. Um, previously, you were with uh, Chorus I was, and yeah. um, um, amongst other you know roles you've you've done there. I, I think uh, did I see the Ministry of Defence or something in the yeah. UK uh, going back a, a, a few years as well. So you know some interesting things. But you've had quite a, a close view and close involvement on UFB yeah. in New Zealand. What are your you know what have been your your learnings and and observations. Sometimes we sort of look at Australia versus New Zealand, how we've gone, how they've gone, and hey, it just looks a lot, a lot better at this end. But you probably, you yeah. know, know yeah. a fair bit more, you know, technically than than most on it. What have been your yeah. observations? Yeah, I've probably got two unique lenses on UFB, having been part of Chorus, and um, you know. Quite quite proud of being part of the team that put UFB together after the um, separation of, um, of Chorus and, and Spark. So that, that was a huge amount of work to get the machine rolling and to actually make that project successful. You know, 85, 87% of New Zealand homes can now access UFB, which is a massive undertaking. And when you compare it to Australia, as you suggest, it's a big advantage for, um, for New Zealand. Uh, I believe the uptake's now at 71, 72% of people that can connect. So a tremendously um, successful project. So... Mm. For someone who was part of Chorus, I think it's been a tremendous project. I think it's been really good for New Zealand. It's improved communications. Um, If you look at the recent weather events, the fibre network actually held up pretty well. Um, The mobile networks held up pretty well, apart from those areas where we lost the fibre connectivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the copper networks didn't hold up so well. So, you know, it really does prove how the investment in fibre has been a good one. Um, if I take my lens now as CTO at two degrees, you know, we use the fiber networks a lot. We use our own fiber network to backhaul from cell sites to transport yeah. nationally, but we also use the UFB network as well. Um, the vast majority of our broadband customers use the UFB network, and uh, we shouldn't underestimate how capable the UFB network is. You know, on an international standards and, and use case um, perspective. You know, if you look at a GPON network, gigabit passive optical networks, generally it takes one fiber and it splits it into many, many other fibers to feed individual homes and businesses. And internationally, the number of splits on that fiber could be 64, 128, or even 256 splits per fiber, i.e. one fiber being shared out between many, many, many homes and different customers. Um, it was quite visionary actually of the people, including CFH and Chorus and others at the time, to actually specify a really low split ratio in New Zealand. So actually, all of our fibre networks have a 16 to 1 or a 24 to 1 split ratio, which is very, very low on an international standard. So it means that our networks are much more capable. And from a two degrees perspective, it means that we use it very well for business customers. 
And we also use it a lot for mobile cell site bike haul as well. When you've got such low split ratios, it means you can get more capacity. It means you have more reliability as well. So it's been, a, it's been um, I think, personally, a fantastic project for New Zealand. Um, you know, reliable broadband into people's homes, reliable broadband into, uh, into businesses, and really good telecommunications use of the fiber asset as well. You mentioned that two degrees, we built our network alongside uh, alongside UFB rollout. And as a result, we've got a very high percentage of fiber fed cell sites versus microwave radio fed cell sites. You know, there's definitely a place for wireless broadband and there's definitely mm-hmm. a place for other kinds of broadband, but fiber obviously is a tremendous asset when you actually, uh, when you need to use lots of data in the home and in the business. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think we're, we're incredibly, you know, fortunate on that uh, on that front, and uh, you know, I think that you know it'll it'll keep paying dividends in all sorts of ways for for a long time to uh, to to come. Obviously, there's you know there's all sorts of other you know differences in terms of New Zealand versus Australia in terms yeah. of you know they'll catch how, up how things <laughs> how things have you know have played out. But uh, yeah, it, I mean it's it's a really it yeah. has been an amazing position to be in um, now. What about sort of the um, this move to to five G? Um, you know that's obviously a, you know a journey for for all networks in terms of you know getting to five G. Uh, and then I, I saw some uh, some some on, online things and of and of course um, Mobile World Congress uh, you know happening in uh, in Barcelona. Um, uh, so 6G ends up sort of you know mm. getting getting uh, thrown around. I th- I think there was something out of uh, uh, maybe it was sort of South Korea of a of a uh, 2028 goal to uh, to to get uh, for them to you know get their first uh, sort of 6G network um, up. But really, there's a there's a lot of work ahead, isn't there in yeah. terms of. Um, yeah. You know, getting five G out there, and then you know, getting the most out of um, out of five G, and it tends to go through. Uh, you know, it's going to go through a lot of a lot of iterations and, and changes over the years ahead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take the G's out of it in, <laughs> yeah. the, in the first part of the answer <laughs> and, and say you know, there's only there's only really three things that allow you to add capacity on a cell site. That's the number of cell sites you deploy in a particular area. Mm. The other one is the amount of spectrum you have. And yep. the third one is how efficiently you actually use that spectrum. Yep. And actually what 5G is doing is it's giving us more spectrum. Mm. You know, we mentioned earlier on 80 megahertz of brand new 3.5 gigahertz spectrum. So that's fantastic. And the second one is it's much more efficient than other technologies from a bits per second per hertz perspective. You know, you're yep. 15, 30 bits per second per hertz across 80 megahertz means that we can get a lot more capacity down through a 5G cell site than we can through a 4G cell site. And we need that as a nation because the growth year on year of mobile usage is running around about 42% on our network. And I believe something similar on the other networks as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in two years, you're almost doubling the amount of capacity that you need in the network. So first and foremost, 5G is the solution to add more capacity um, in the future. Um, it's doing that in many so it's ways. It's not just about the individual sort of connectivity, you know, per person. Because I think it, you know, yeah. it's easy to fire it up. Yeah. And go, oh, I got, you know, as we did before, 
you know, 300 plus megabits per second sort of down to your mobile device and think, I don't need that much at my at my mobile device, but we've got to, we've got to look at it from that bigger picture perspective. Yeah. I mean, 5G is tremendously good at giving you very high capacity when you need it without interfering with other people. The other thing to realize with mobile networks is we, you know, we transmit more data, but you don't want to interfere with the next cell site. So what 5G does really well, and it's technologies like multi-user technologies and spatial antenna technologies and beamforming technologies, actually allows us to send the data just in the direction of the actual device that needs it, rather than to everybody in a particular in a particular cell. You know, most devices now have four antennas within them. Um, a cell site with a 5G antenna normally has 32 antennas, 32 small little base stations in any 5G antenna, and it's tremendously um, um, flexible in how those antennas can actually point the data streams in different directions for the use of individuals, and it means you can put the power and put the transmit and put the data in a different, in a particular direction, but it means also that you're not putting interference in another direction. So it is quite a clever technology in how you can actually have data where you need it, interference where you don't need it. And what is the what is the sort of typical utilization of you know of these cell sites? This idea of you know being able to you know focus in a in a particular Mm. um, you know direction. yeah, I think when you know we first heard about you know these sort of beam forming type technologies and say you know home Wi-Fi type environments, like yeah. oh that's yeah, that yeah. sounds cool. Then thinking of it in a cell site context, you're thinking, hold on, there's a lot of people potentially yeah. using you know a, a given a given cell site. Um, you know, even more so if you're I don't know at a at a, a sports game or you know somewhere where there's a lot of a yeah. lot of people um, you know all at once. What a, what do you see? From from that perspective, and uh, you know how useful are those technologies when you've got you know lot, lots of people ab- about? Yeah, I mean obviously essential. I mean we mentioned earlier on that we've built all five layers of every cell site that we've replaced in Auckland, Wellington, and Christchurch, and that's the first way that you actually manage the capacity. That's the spectrum part we were talking about earlier on, and then you're using technologies we talked about like beamforming to make sure you get the most out of the spectrum, and then five G actually has a higher data rate than 4G, for example. Um, you know, I, I have a map on my PC here that we use in the uh, in the office, and actually all of the two-degree cell sites in central Auckland and central Wellington are now completely green and ready for usage and ready for capacity to be um, allocated to customers after that, after that renovation. So really future-proofing the network at busy hour. Mm-hmm. You know, the only mm-hmm. time that really matters for us um, telco professionals is busy hour. You know, we don't care so much about how used the cell site is in four in the morning or even perhaps 12 p.m. in the afternoon. You know, the busy hour between when the school kids leave school to when people are putting their phones down in the evening and stopping using Netflix around 9, 10 p.m., that's the part that, that really matters. And so looking at that, what's the role of, of fixed, you know, fixed wireless, using the mobile network to... Yeah. Uh, you know, to connect a home, a business, or you know, what what have you, um, you know, rather than rather than tapping into fibre, because obviously fibre is not available everywhere. But there, there's also, you know, I guess this aspect where you want to generate, uh, as as every network, you know, naturally would, you want to you yeah. know generate as much from 
uh, from your network asset, uh, you know, as you can. And yes, you're previously at Chorus, but I'm, yep. I'm, I'm sure uh, you know you you want to uh, uh, yeah get the most out and and not be uh, you know p- paying out uh, too much off to uh, uh, to the to the likes of Chorus. Yeah, right? I mean to to be realistic and pragmatic in the answer, it's about choice. Hmm. If a particular customer has a wireless broadband device, be it 4G or 5G, maybe there's data caps, maybe it's unlimited. Depending on what they need, that can provide a really good broadband service that can support Teams calling all day. It can support you know the Netflix movie in the evening without any problems at all. I mean, for example, in my house, I use fiber most of the time, but I will swap to a 4G and 5G modem just to experience what the difference is and just to experience you know, how it feels to be using that network. Certainly working from home, using Teams, using video, doing email, no difference whatsoever. Um, watching a movie in the evening on a 4G wireless connection, no difference whatsoever. Maybe the only time there's a tiny difference is when I've got one teenager watching movies, I've got another teenager on the Xbox, I've got my wife watching TV, I'm working upstairs, and maybe there'll be a little bit of an issue, not an issue, but maybe a little bit of a degradation then. So I guess what I'm saying is it's about choice. You know, unless you're the kind of person that uses one, two, or three terabytes of data every single month, and you've got three or four people in the house who use a lot of data, you're probably okay with with wireless broadband, provided we do our jobs as telco CTOs and make sure that you've got enough capacity, you've got enough coverage, and we're putting those devices in the right places in the cellular network. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're 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 pretty sport in New Zealand that we you know that we have these choices, right? So we've got um, we've got fiber, which uh, you know if if it's if it's practical and it's available to use, then uh, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it, it's it, unbeatable and and you know in just about every re- regard. Um, but look, actually, if you can get four G or five G doing a doing doing a um, you know uh, or suits suits your needs, and um, and you've got some advantage whether it's price or flexibility to take it from your home to a batch yeah. or or you know another scenario like that. Um, yeah. then that can stack up quite well. Yeah, there's like, I mean, like you suggest, there's many reasons to have wireless broadband. It could be because it's your batch, it's your second connection. It could be because you're price conscious and you don't want to pay quite as much as you would do for a fibre connection. But, you know, 71% of people who can get a fibre connection have connected a fibre connection, which gives you an idea of, you know, the fact that it performs very, very well. Mm-hmm. How do you see things sort of you know playing out with um, with Starlink? It's a you know it's a, um, a you know premium price, and of course um, SpaceX can you know twiddle the knobs as I, I see they have been doing on on some of their plans and 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 so on uh, recently. Um, I think you know their RV rates are going up, and you know other 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 bits and pieces. Um, do you think? Now that now that that's been in the market for for a little while, that that things will be, you know, reasonably settled because their performance might not necessarily, you know, change a lot sitting in the in the short term, um, but no doubt there's going to be more and more five G available yeah. in, in in rural areas. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's about choice and it's about necessity. 
I mean, for example, we're using Starlink business grade products and they are several hundred dollars to buy and mm. several hundred dollars a month in subscription services. Yeah, so your average yeah. consumer really doesn't want to pay for that kind of grade of service. Um, often the reason why people are attracted to wireless broadband is it's less than a fiber connection. Mm. Starlink is in fact significantly more than a fiber connection to pay for per month. So it almost becomes each product to a particular use case or a particular marketplace. Certainly wouldn't um, not recommend using a Starlink solution in a remote rural location where you can't get good wireless broadband. Um, our business team is currently promoting Starlink as well because we want to make sure that our business customers can get a ubiquitous connection, a ubiquitous service no matter where they are. So we're actually using Starlink sets out there with business customers to connect branch offices and to connect customers where they need to, where they need to as well. So, look, I mean, it, it's another tool in the toolbox. I'm absolutely certain it's not going to replace fiber. As you know, it's the uh, it's the gold standard, and I'm absolutely certain it's not going to replace 4G or 5G wireless broadband where the service is is good enough. Yeah, and where does where does 5G sort of fit in on the the fixed wireless um, front? Because the, you know it's been it's been quite pricey to uh, um, to put five you know to buy 5G um, devices for you know for for a home and so on. Where does that sort of fit for you on the on the network at this point in time yeah i mean obviously um i pay for the network and i buy the network and i rely <laughs> on my product colleagues to uh, put the right price in the marketplace but the the, the, the cost of a 5g um, fixed wireless um, service is actually tremendously competitive when you mm. consider mm. how capable it actually is mm. you know from my perspective uh, it's i wouldn't say worryingly so because we've got a heck of a lot of 5g capacity but i really do mm. think that we're going to be supporting many more 5g wireless broadband connections on the uh, on the two degrees network mm. Mm. so so the um um and i'm forgetting the the term i'll just say router so the the 5g yeah. routers are, are now yeah. at such a level because it did seem to be you know a challenge to um to purchase yeah. those in the past, so it seemed like it was always 4G really being used for sort of fixed wireless. Um, yeah, the, 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 there's competing factors at play here because mm, we've mm. got an inflationary marketplace where component prices have, have gone up in some instances and mm. supply chains have been mm. constrained. Mm. So that that actually is maintaining prices. Yeah. But at the same time, the manufacturers are starting to produce in volume. They're starting mm. to get smarter in how they actually produce the devices and the components they use. The sizes are getting smaller. Yep. So actually, the, you know, the price, the, the input price is mm. actually coming down, perhaps yep. not quite as fast as we would have liked it to, but um, yep. it is getting more competitive the more we actually put into the marketplace. Yeah, okay. Um, not too much else um, that we're going to be able to squeeze in, but... Um, <laughs> eSIMs, uh, that's you know something you've you've supported for uh, sure, you know for, yep. for for a while now. Um, how's the how's the uptake? How you know how are you finding uh, that in terms of you know how yep. often are, are people using eSIM? And um, probably the other bit, which is sort of attached to that, is um, it does seem to be technically sort of a you know a challenge to support the likes of Apple Watch and. And so on. Um, yep. Are you able to, you know, share a little bit about that? Yeah, that yeah. Side? It, it's becoming more popular. I mean, you, you obviously heard 
rumors and noises in the marketplace about some devices actually going eSIM only. So mm. it's definitely mm. the way the market is going mm. in the uh, in the mm. future. Um, we obviously support both SIM-based and eSIM-based devices. Mm. Um, and we've seen more eSIM activations coming on board every month that goes by. Uh, we've been using it in some innovative ways. Like, for example, we've been offering trials on the Two Degrees Network. We can activate the SIM on the device with actually the need, without actually out having the need to send a SIM to a customer. So, you know, we're thinking about more innovative ways that we can actually use it. I mean, for example, um, I've got two connections in my phone. You know, we do some uh, partnerships with Vodafone and Spark, and we actually swap SIMs or swap connections and make sure we've always got a couple of connections on our devices for uh, emergency situations, for mm, example. Mm. Uh, with respect to wearables, working hard in the background, wearables, it's not just the network, it's the back-end systems as well to be able to um, support them and support all the applications and voice and data and interconnectivity and make sure that they can work independently when you're out and about away from your, your phone. So uh, watch this space uh, coming soon from two degrees. Oh, that sounds exciting. That's that's great. Around the merging and bringing, um, you know, Vocus and Two Degrees together, sure. how does that go? One of the things that we, we looked at with Vodafone, they had had varying sort of acquisitions and so on over the years and quite hard to sort of yeah. merge all the technology systems together. How does that look for you? And is that a is that a yeah. you know a big long road ahead to really make things seamless and to I guess get rid of sort of legacy systems so you can standardize yeah. everything on on one system? Yeah, I mean I think I'd use two words: um, unrelenting, fast. <laughs> um, no, I mean seriously, not just myself but my colleagues um, in the company as well. You know, our number one focus is to bring the two companies together as fast as we possibly can. We know that if you don't do it now and you don't do it fast, and you don't make it your priority <laughs> one, it will never happen. So we are unrelenting as a team to get through the integration process from a network perspective, from a systems perspective, from a people perspective, from a culture perspective, you know, having one company in two degrees as fast as we possibly can. And, you know, the boss was here. And, you know, it's been a, a very consistent mantra that we are two degrees mm -hmm. going forward. That's our brand. And we're going to be two degrees from one consistent network, fiber, transport, core networking, radio access networking, BSS and OSS systems, and so it goes on. Mm. Oh well, good luck with uh, you know with Big the job. next steps there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we've we've covered a fair bit of ground uh, actually, Martin. It's been it's been great. Anything anything else you think that we should? Uh, Covered everything from the cyclone to, you know, network build to 5G to, to UFB to everything, really. I mean, obviously, um, two degrees is, you know, 13, 14 years old, um, growing, getting stronger and stronger by the month. And, you know, from a network perspective for myself, you know, we really are investing to make sure that we're not catching up with the competition anymore. We're up there on a par with the um, with the other guys. So, uh really investing, focusing, and working really hard to make sure Two Degrees customers get the best possible experience. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, that was something that I probably, you know, we kept, we covered off uh, when Mark Callender was, you know, was in yep. last year. And um, I've, I've been, you know, doing a bit of uh, comparative, uh, you know, testing as I've been around the country over the last, you know, few months with a, with a uh, Two Degrees connection alongside uh, my Vodafone and, and Spark connections, and yeah, I was I've actually been you know pleasantly yeah. surprised with uh, uh, that. It, it almost feels um, you know like you know 
certainly the the different you know spots I've been and you know having been on on you know road trip around varying parts of the South Island through areas like the Catlins and and so on and um, the like that um, yeah if if you're not going to have connectivity you you can't you know you can't predict as maybe you might have been able to in in the old days as to you know which which network uh, yeah. you know might be up or, or or down in a particular area. But I mentioned the Catlins. I you know I think there was a, a chunk of driving there where yeah there was there was no 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 network and there will be uh, places like that. But uh, with with the work with the rural connectivity yeah. group, of course, yeah. um, you know that's improving all the time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, probably to be honest, four, five, six years ago. If you'd wanted the best performance and you'd wanted national coverage, you probably wouldn't have choose, chosen two degrees. It's a completely different world today. You know, we've got the most modern network in the city centres, and that's expanding obviously to other places around New Zealand this year and next year. You know, brand new equipment. Um, you know, really utilising five G to the max in those areas. You mentioned ICG. The playing field is exactly the same in uh, in rural areas with respect to that network that we've all built together. So, you know, part of the um, part of the issue we have as two degrees is just cut through to hearts and minds for people to believe that we actually have an equal, if not better, network in some places than um, than the competition. Yeah. Oh, well, well, well done on um, on all the work. And uh, look, it's you know, it's it's great to have. A situation in New Zealand where, you know, from a telecommunications perspective, things are competitive, and uh, you know, everyone's uh, working working very hard to uh, to bring their bring their A game, I, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I think you know everybody benefits from uh, from that. And I'm really curious how things sort of you know play out over the next uh, next few years ahead. But uh, you know, long may the competition continue. Yeah, look, it's an amazing industry. And um, last plug, if anyone wants to come work at Two Degrees, amazing company, amazing culture, amazing technology, get in touch. Excellent. All right. Oh, thank you so much for your time, Martin. No problem. Anytime, Paul. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening in. And, of course, thank you to our, our show partners, uh, Vodafone, uh, Two Degrees, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology for supporting the show. Uh, and, of course, we will be back again uh, with another show next week. If you've been watching the live stream, uh, then you know, fire up a podcast player and subscribe to the, the show, uh, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you know, find one of those if you're, if you're new to the audio side. If you're listening that way but you want to catch the show earlier, connect with me on LinkedIn, um, but you can also find NZ Tech Podcast um, and myself across uh, Twitter, Facebook, and also on YouTube. So those are the places for uh, for the video. All right, thanks everyone. Catch you next week. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.